0: in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from various locations here in the city of Detroit, powered by the Eastside Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to the new Bridge Detroit publication. I'm Orlando Bailey.
1: And I'm Donna Giffens.
0: Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every single week, so make sure that you turn on those notifications. Today, we are having a discussion about activism and organizing in cities like Detroit, Minneapolis, LA, Atlanta, and DC. We've seen the Black Lives Matter mural on 16th Street in DC. We've seen the city council in Minneapolis resolve to disband police. We see the protests that take place here in the city of Detroit every single day. Is this real progress? Joining us for the conversation today is Rashad Young. Rashad is the city administrator for the District of Columbia, better known as DC. He is also my friend and Marshall Memorial brother, Rashad. Welcome to Authentically Detroit.
2: Thank you very much, Orlando, for having me.
0: We're happy to have you. We're happy to have you. Donna, happy uh, Monday, Donna.
1: A happy Monday. I don't know if those words ever go together because Monday, well, you know. this <laughs> is the, the fourth day of the weekend. I just thought I need it, or third day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we need it. We need a third day. You know, there's been like, there's been a ton of conversation around just Xing out Fridays, just saying, you know what, no more Friday as a work day. What do you think?
1: I, um, ECM practiced a four day work day for the past eight weeks. And I work six days a week, so I don't know what that looks like. It's a great you, concept. You would enact
0: well, that after I'm gone. Gosh, I would love. Yeah, it. right.
1: Well, that was that was one of your going away presents. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, had you stayed, you know how people. do it. <laughs> It's you like when I not, got my like he's on vacation. He was like, "Look, look, kids, I'm going to take you all around the world." You know, that's how <laughs> that's how it works.
0: Donna be shading me, Rashad. Like, every <laughs> chance she gets, <laughs> every chance she gets, we were in a meeting earlier, and so, like, everybody in the meeting has to go around and introduce themselves and, you know, where they work and what they do. Her uh, introduction was, I'm Donna Givens, I'm the president and CEO of Eastside Community Network, and I used to work with Orlando. Like... <laughs> We still work together. We have to okay. pull this thing off every Monday.
1: So, uh, and that's absolutely true because, this, uh, in aside from authentically to try, I still think I'm supervising him. I sent Orlando a task at least two or three times a day, like, Orlando, here's some things I you need to work on. <laughs> and I have to pull myself back, like, because I want a progress report and everything. He's like, Donna, I don't work for you. Yeah. Just, just like when he used to work, me, he just smiles and just handles it so gracefully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: She, but the the funny thing is, like a month or so later, the stuff that she was talking about, she would actually see. So it's the same thing. We'll see what happens. We'll happens. <laughs> oh no, actually, we get?
1: actually, he does actually listen very well. We're we're friends, and he listens. So it was actually more of a collegial relationship than one that was, you know, top yeah. down. Our weekend was good. We um celebrated my niece um graduated from Stanford yesterday online, and so she got her. Bachelor's in Science in Chemistry and Biology, and she is also vegan, and she has been trying to convert us for the past six years, and now she has a few credentials to try to work with. So, <laughs> so we had we had a vegan celebration. you know, my daughter, Sarah, made a vegan peach pie, and yeah, everything had to meet her standards. But it was great because my family got together for the first time since the pandemic began and Mm -hmm. hanging out with my mom and my sisters and my niece and of course my granddaughter luna the star of the show was you know perfect how was yours
0: oh man um my weekend my weekend so i'm i'm house hunting so been uh looking at homes you know all weekend and uh celebrated my great aunt's birthday physically distance. it was super weird we all had masks and stuff on in the backyard but that was the first time I was really around like a crowd of people about 25 to 30 folks I was nervous um and you know night capped it with uh the season finale of Insecure oh. I'm stressed
2: out no I don't I've not watched it Wow. Now I feel like I should, like, have a binge watch or something so yeah, I can I, catch up.
1: Orlando and I are trying to catch catch some marketing dollars from Issa Ray, And so every week we tell people, you have to watch Insecure. And I'm not sure if we have a large enough audience to really convince Issa to invest in Authentically Detroit. But you know what, Issa? We see you. We feel you. And we're buying the storyline. It was crazy yesterday. I'm stressed
0: out. I'm stressed out. Condolences need to go somewhere and sit down. I'm just... <laughs> over it.
1: See I was worried about condolence. I was worried about Nathan. Because every time Nathan and Issa get together, I'm worried something is just about to pop off and happen. Okay. They have (laughs) a little history and nobody's really thinking about what's going on with them.
0: Well you know they're being you know friends and Isa is drawing the line you know what I'm saying?
1: Okay, hey, well you know what? Like I told Kevin, if you ever have a friend and you all get together and you're like that, it's gotta end, okay? Because <laughs> that friendship does not look safe to me. <laughs> well, you know,
0: after after the finale, you know, we 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 may see something next oh, season between I know, right? East I was actually rooting for Nathan.
1: Oh, you know, it, it, Lawrence is like old shoes, but you know what, E um. Nathan is like red bottoms to me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Be also, very worried, Lawrence.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, be be afraid. I also spend my weekend sifting through a lot of tweets. Last week I did uh, a talk with Canadian Urban Institute about uh, anti-Black racism and urbanism and design with Jay Pitter and a ton of other urban planners uh, across canada and across the united states was about five of us on the panel and that talk got a lot a lot of attention so my twitter mentions were off the hook what's funny though donna you remember this people think that we're urban planners you and i did you know that like we we passed for urban planners i had to remind folks that i'm literally i'm not an urban planner i supervise capstones and stuff but yeah well
1: you know when they start calling urban planners gentrifiers, I'm like, nope, I'm not one of them. <laughs> what about you, Rashad, are you an urban planner?
2: I am not an urban planner, what not a at all. Um, So my, my academic background is in business. I have an undergraduate in business and an MBA, which not a lot of uh, public administrators or city managers have that um, academic track. But yeah, I'm, I'm from the school of business.
1: Where, where did you go to school?
2: Went to the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio for my undergrad and graduate. I'm from Dayton, Ohio, Uh, originally born and raised there, public schools there, then college uh, there, and started actually my work in government at the city of Dayton as an intern uh, when I was in college, yeah. Wow. And you're married with children? I am. I have been married uh, for 18 years. I have two. Uh, young men, uh, who are eating me out of house and home. My boys are 11 and 13, uh, years old. They're actually in Dayton right now, visiting, uh, my family and my wife's family. So I'll be in Dayton later this week, uh, to join them for the weekend for Father's Day and then we'll come back to DC. Yeah.
0: I love it. I love it. How's your weekend? Did you do anything fun?
2: So my weekend, since I was, um, bacheloring it at home, uh, I spent my weekend um at Lowe's <laughs> getting mulch and potting soil and hydrangeas and I planted flowers. I'm about a month late um and doing some yard work. So I was it was a beautiful weekend in D C in terms of the weather. So I was outside uh working on the yard, um, which was which was good. It was fun. It was fun.
1: Rashad, you, you are making Men all over America look bad. Their families go out of town, and they go to the store, and they just look, engage a little home improvement, yeah, and come my, back, and let wife. their wives come back to a beautified home. Oh my goodness! How do you how do you even maintain friendships like this? <laughs>
2: I usually <laughs> got, I don't tell people what I do on the weekend. That's
0: <laughs> you, just, you just made it bad for all of us. Thanks. Uh-huh.
1: That's what i did <laughs> you know, so, but I, I i'm getting married and what you did is straight out of my fiance's heart i'm telling you that's exactly what kevin would do so um Congratulations. thank you to the man who will take care of business when he has little free time
2: that's right that's Don't right
1: <laughs> I am. We spent the weekend looking for venues. We were driving all over Detroit trying to find venues. I think we figured out that we're going to get married at the Detroit Yacht Club. Um, okay. About it. Detroit looks horrible right now. Landscaping. Sheltering in place has done nothing for our Landscapes. all the flower gardens don't have flowers when you really look at the human toll and you realize that people who usually be working these jobs aren't out there doing the work anymore everything is weedy and kind of messed up and i'm glad people's lives were saved and they were not required to work but the city looks a hot mess i couldn't believe we went to park after park and it was just a a disappointment. Have you seen that at all, Orlando, driving around looking no. at houses?
0: Yeah, I have. You know, even uh some of our medians in uh in in the roads and stuff have been overgrown. And even, you know, some of the parks, especially if you're not a premier park here in the city of Detroit, it gets a little it does get a little high. And so um as the city sort of begins to reopen, my my hope is that we would at least, you know, see some our spaces, our outdoor spaces, beautified on a more regular basis. Because you're right, you're right. But oh, the yacht, yacht club
1: plant flowers like you did. I don't know if you want to come to Detroit and help lead some landscaping crews because I need to see some public flowers out. It's very upsetting to me.
0: <laughs> the yacht club <laughs> is on Belle Isle, Rashad. I don't know if you know what Belle Isle is. Is our Premier oh. Island here in the city of Detroit that borders Canada, designed by Albert Kahn, who also uh, designed—he he designed Central Park too, right? Yeah, Central Park um, in New York. So it—we call it the island in the city. We—that's nice. that's where we go. That's where we go to hang out.
1: We and now the, the the Belle Isle is now owned by the state or managed by the state of Michigan. So we tried to have our um, wedding in the planetarium, which is the outdoor flower gardens um, in Bel-Isle, which are absolutely beautiful. But two things are happening in our city. One is that Detroit sits on the Detroit River, and the Detroit River levels are higher than they've ever been. And Mm. so half of the island is underwater. There's so much flooding on our island that you can't even drive through half of it. And the second thing is through this pandemic, um, the state is being very conservative, rightfully so, about leasing out its spaces. So I tried to lease out, and they said that they are not gonna rent out any outdoor spaces even in 2020. So, um, you know, we're in, uh, we, we, things are starting to feel more like normal, but they will not be normal. In fact, normal will be different in 2020 than it is um, right now. And I know that's true for you because you now have a Black Lives Matter plaza in D.C. Yeah, that's that's like new, right? It is new. It (laughs) is new. Can you tell us about how that happened and what that that story? Because he he did
2: it (laughs) illegally. (laughs) We did sort of. So you know, we've had we had these days of successive protests right in D.C. Um, all around our city, uh, through the downtown, um, through uh, various neighborhoods, uh, they marched from you know one one protest day they marched, uh, Protesters marched from Howard University into downtown. They marched and and protested in front of the Justice Department, in, in front of on Freedom Plaza. But really, the focal point of the protest tended to be Lafayette Square, uh, which is a federal park that. Um, Uh, sits right in front of the White House and contains really the White House complex. Uh, And earlier in that week, I think it may have been on Thursday um, or Wednesday, uh, there was a protest at Lafayette Square. We had had the night prior uh, some looting and some um, fire set, and a fire was set in the basement of the historic St. John's Church. I think every president since... Uh, Adams had been at St. John's uh, Church, Episcopal Church, um, for service um, for one form or or another. And so the president uh, intended to address, uh, have a press conference on the Rose Garden. Uh, He came out with this law and order speech. And earlier in that day, he hosted a call with all of the nation's governors, which he has typically done or the vice president has done in response to the coronavirus. And his rhetoric on that call was just so inflammatory. Uh, He talked about how the governors need to get tough, they needed to push these protesters back, they needed to restore law and order, um, all of this stuff. So he does the press conference on the Rose Garden and then decides that he wants to walk um, across the White House uh, grounds through Lafayette uh, park to St. John's Church. And if you know uh, anything about DC and the White House in Lafayette, it's really a short stroll from the White House to cross to St. John's Church across 8th Street at 16th Street and you're there. Uh, but there were hundreds, perhaps a thousand protesters um, in front of this barricade and in front of um, um, National Guard troops and federal police from all kinds of agencies uh, that were at Lafayette Square. And so um, the, the federal police um, forced those protesters who were protesting peacefully to move by firing munitions and pepper ball spray and pushing them back, um, which essentially cleared a path for the president to walk across the street in front of St. John's Church uh, to take a picture holding the Bible. Um, and, you know, we were uh, distraught and aghast at uh, peaceful protesters being handled in that way by federal law enforcement officials. Um, our police department wasn't engaged in um, that line uh, of federal law enforcement because they were on federal property. They secure that. We secure the city streets. Uh, but after that um, movement and, and. Um, that experience with those protesters, I mean, it just really felt like the city was being besieged by the federal government in a way that we had not seen, at least I certainly have not seen in the five years I've been here. And, and, and even our mayor, who's a fifth generation Washingtonian, like we just don't remember a time where um, that sort of tension existed uh, as a result of this experience with the, with the federal government. And so the next day we were talking, our our team was talking about the protests for that day, curfews, all of the looting, all of these things. And one of my colleagues said, um, and I wish I could take credit for this idea, but one of my colleagues uh, said, you know, we should, um, what if we painted Black Lives Matter on 16th Street? And everybody was like, oh, yes, like let's do it. And the mayor was like, absolutely. Like, can we do it? Let's call Public Works. Let's get it done. And so DC has a group called um, DC Murals. Um, It is a mural team that's in our Public Works Department. And they commission art on the sides of buildings. They will take areas that have been previously graffitied and turn it into public art. And so we commissioned the DC Murals team to paint Black Lives Matter over a three-block stretch on 16th Street. And so I think they started at three in the morning um, on, I believe it was Thursday or, or early Friday morning. And by the time I got to 16th and H um, at 10 o'clock, uh, the mural was done. And the, there were re- just residents organically, spontaneously showing up, grabbing a paintbrush and like filling in and, and painting um, this mural uh, on the street. And at about 11 o'clock, we had a boom truck. Um, uh, One of our workers from the Department of Transportation lifted up, um, took the street sign off and put on Black Lives Matter, uh, Matter Plaza. And so I had called the chairman of the council and said, you know, Mr. Chairman, we're doing this mural and we're changing the name of the street. And I know it's illegal because we have no legislative authority to change Thing has been all over the world um, and, and people seeing the aerial view of Black Lives Matter Plaza and I think you just sent such a message um, that said we hear you, um, we understand, the government understands, we're giving you space uh, to make this protest, to make your voices heard uh, to, and, and to turn what what I think was a really negative and distasteful and shameful act um, at Lafayette uh, Square uh, by these federal officials into a place of peace and hope and reconciliation um, and and just reflection for people. And to this day, if I walked out of my office and went three blocks up the street, um, Black Lives Matter Plaza will be full of people because we've kept the street closed since we painted it. Um, and and now it's just sort of this pedestrian gathering place uh, for residents of D.C. and for visitors who have come here.
1: So I have a question to ask about that. Yeah. I mean, congratulations. That was beautiful to see, I think, Black people all over the world, and certainly those of us in Detroit, um, the other chocolate city, um, yes. that's, that's no longer as dark chocolate as it used to be, but whatever, <laughs> you know, growing up. D.C. and Detroit were like the chocolate cities, right? We had the highest percentages of black, black people. And we also had really high percentages of middle-income Black people, high Black professionals, people from all different walks of life. And so it was a sister city to Detroit, at least in my head. You know, I don't know if um, D.C. looked at Detroit as a sister, but there's even churches that um, had congregations in D.C. and Detroit. Plymouth United Methodist Church, for example, has a congregation in both places. And there's Mm -hmm. a connection there. And so, you know, hats off to my sister, City, who may not consider me a sister. But, um, you know, when I look at tear gas and when I look at what's happening in cities like Detroit, where we don't have a racist bully president in charge, but we're still tear gassing and firing rubber bullets at peaceful protesters. I wonder if we're sometimes not understanding that the message is not we hate the president, but that we hate police oppression. And we should not be militarizing any public space. Because a peaceful protest is a peaceful protest in Detroit, Atlanta, Minneapolis, or DC. But in cities like ours, where we have very little destruction, very little violence. We had a whole lot of tear gas. Um, I don't know what was it the Saturday bef- the week before last, there were these peaceful protesters who were walking down Gratiot Avenue, which is on the east side of Detroit, not far from Orlando and myself, where we live and where uh, I, I work in Orlando, used to work, another shade. And um, <laughs> in that peaceful protest, <laughs> in that peaceful protest, the police department performed a box maneuver where they boxed in these protesters to stop them from dispersing and then told them to disperse because they were out after curfew. Then they didn't use tear gas that day. I guess that was bad. So they pepper sprayed their faces and they zip tied their hands and they put them on a paddy wagon or whatever. And they took them to a taxpayer funded stadium. So they get on this bus, they go to the stadium and they arrest the organizer who we invited on this show. um, but he's was not available. They arrested the organizer, and there was a rumor that they were going to arrest him for inciting a riot for the crime of being out past curfew. Now, right at the site where they arrested them, all of the banners, all of the signs, Black Lives Matter, whatever, were on the ground left with the water bottles and everything else that had been in the protesters' hands. The next day, the police chief returned to that site. And said, look, they mess up. Look at this debris they left here. As if a police action did not cause this debris to be left in that spot. And as if anybody who's been boxed in could disperse, even with governmental orders. When in fact, the government had decided, the police department had decided, we are going to arrest these people and we're not going to let them get away. That was the decision. No violence, no no destruction, no nothing. They were marching down the street. And so I guess my question for you is, how does this, how do you see this? I mean, is it worse if the president fires tear g- um, gas than if a mayor does?
2: No, I don't think it's worse if the, if the. Well, I don't think it's worse. It is, it isn't, a, um, uh,
1: the behavior
2: isn't um, what I would say is kind, you don't compare the degrees of badness, if you will, uh, by who did it. Um, I think for DC, a couple of things I would, I would say after hearing that story, um, that what I believe was so um, over the top for us in the district is that we deal with protests um, every day of the week and twice on Saturday. This is a place where people come to protest. They do it all the time. Mm -hmm. It could be Tuesday morning on my way to work, and there's a protest at 14th and Pennsylvania just because that's what happened that day. And it happens to us all of the time. And so our police department in this city believes very strongly in people's ability to exercise their First Amendment rights. If you showed up in the District of Columbia um, and blocked traffic, Uh, on the 14th Street Bridge and preventing all of the commuters from coming in, then that's just what you did on your protest day. And the Metropolitan Police Department will facilitate that protest. They'd facilitate that movement in the street. We would hold it on that 14th Street Bridge coming from Virginia until that protest moved. And that's what we do here. And so what was so, I think, over the top here is that that isn't the way that we typically manage protests in the District of Columbia. And to have another entity, a law enforcement entity or entities that aren't responsible to this government and to these people um, exercise their law enforcement prerogative in that way um, is just a completely opposite of our value set. And that is not to say that the police department here is perfect, that they do everything right. My, this police department uses a box maneuver too, but when they do it, Um, we intend to do it for only those people who are destroying property for which we know and believe um, were riotous. And so a box maneuver was used here by our police department, but it was used after two cars were set on fire and some windows were broken into uh, to try to get this, like, to to be able to enforce these arrests. We too had a curfew in the district, but we let the protesters march well beyond the curfew hour and only took an enforcement action for people who were damaging businesses, burning cars, set a building on fire, right? And so we, we're trying to find the right balance here about how we approach those um, different things. But but you don't—that's not how protests are handled in the District of Columbia. Okay. That's,
1: that's Sh- good to hear. And I don't—I just want to clarify. I understand how awful what the president did was, when I looked at, I don't know if it was the Lincoln Memorial where you had soldiers and- It It was Lincoln Memorial. It it was chilling. It was, is this a police state? When the president said that he wanted the state to dominate protesters, that was horrible language to use. So I'm not disagreeing with that. I just wanted to just point out that um, I think we're still trying to get at the point where we allow for peaceful protests in the city of detroit no i
2: i i I appreciate the question because it really matters not like who leads that charge like the wrong is still the wrong you know and and it's just you know to have the at the lincoln memorial and throughout the city um armed national guards members from various states across the country was chilling and scary for us in DC, because um, that's not what happens here. And then and no other, it, it really does make, I think, our argument for statehood um, um, all the more important and critical. Uh, and I was remarking to, to some friends um, last week about this. In no state in the country or no city in the country Did the president try to exercise his muscle like he did in the district? And he did it in the district, I believe, because he felt like he could, because we aren't a state. And he knows that. And there are certain things that the federal government can do in DC and to DC that the federal government cannot do to a sovereign state in the United States of America. Uh, and, and 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 it really creates. Um, a real issue for the 730,000 people that live here and pay taxes here uh, to be treated that
0: way. Rashad, I wanna ask you about uh, the mayoral administration's uh, relationship with the activist community in D.C. Protests did ensue um, in D.C. And I'm wondering uh, from your vantage point, what uh, sort of propositions were laid out to the mayor's office Um, into your office that you all can answer for or at least look at beyond creating that space on the plaza?
2: Yeah, you know, this is an area where I really wish we could find more ground to have constructive dialogue with some of our activists here. Um, We haven't really been able to do that um, as effectively as I would like. Um, but I will tell you that from the sort of what I, what I understand to be the um, core request around uh, defunding the police, which really, when you pull that back, is really about making investments upstream in, uh, in communities to deal with the root causes of issues that impact uh, disproportionately Black and brown people, education, income mental health, um, uh, physical health care, to make those investments so that um, the urban sort of decay and plight that we see in too many neighborhoods can be abated before they become problems that mm-hmm. then you try to get law enforcement engaged in. So when you look at the the premise of, or the request around defunding the police, um, I think in, in DC, we have to be able to have an honest conversation around what the facts and the reality are. And again, this community isn't perfect. There's a lot more that we can do. We still have institutional bias and systemic racism uh, like many too many communities have across the country. Uh, but when you talk about where we're spending our money, um, we are moving in the absolute right direction. And so the police budget is not the largest expenditure that we have in the District of Columbia. Um, It isn't. Education is, right? And so if you look at the period of time from 2015, which is where I mark my time, because that's when I started and that's when the mayor got elected, to today, the police department budget has grown 12%. Education spending has grown by 40%. In that same period of of 12% police growth, human services budget has grown by 75%. Healthcare has grown by 21%, mental health by 15%. Nonprofit support for victims of violence has grown by 90%. And so when we talk about where we're putting dollars in this community, we are putting them upstream to try to solve um, for the kinds of issues we see. We make investments in workforce development. We make investments in adult education. We make investments in mental health supports and in homeless outreach. I spent a good portion of my time talking about how to remake the homeless shelter. We built seven shelters in seven wards across the district for uh, homeless families, to and put it in the richest ward to the poorest ward, right? And so we're doing the kinds of things that the activists wants the activists want us to do. I think. Um, we might not be doing them fast enough. Um, we may not be getting. They may have issues with what they see or the outcomes that we're we're providing. But I think there's more common ground than we both give ourselves credit for. And so we've got to figure out a way to engage. I think more productively.
1: So I've um, my cousin actually lives in D.C. I've been there. I have a lot of friends in the area. Um, and one of the things I've heard has been well seen has been the exploding cost of housing yeah a lot of people don't want what is being done in DC to bring down the ridiculous um, escalation housing cost because I've seen two things. One is just all of these new, really expensive things. And then the other thing has been the explosion of short-term rentals, Airbnbs, which have pushed people out of a lot of neighborhoods. And I know that because of my Uber education. Every time I get an Uber driver, they educate me about how they used to live in the area where I'm in the Airbnb. I'm like, okay, I'm not staying in them anymore because you're letting me know I'm a gentrifier when I'm visiting. But how do you, what, what is your strategy for that?
2: Yeah, so affordable housing is the number one issue in the district, and it's the number one issue for our administration. Um, when we started in twenty fifteen, we contributed about fifty to fifty-five million in affordable housing per year. Every year since we've been here, we've invested at least one hundred million. Wait,
0: wait, wait. You say fifty to fifty one million a year? Fifty to fifty five million a year. Fifty-five million a year with a little
2: over. Prior to
0: 2015. OK, all right. Um, what's your resident s- population, 700,000, you say? It was 700,000 p- people.
1: Hey, before, before you go on, what is affordable housing? I, I need to understand what affordable is. Is it 80% of your AMI?
2: No. Uh, we, so we are affordable housing. And the law that we have around how we spend our affordable housing dollars says the majority of that has to be spent at 30 and below. Uh, 30 <laughs> and below. Um, wow. So, and, and, and from there it, it ranges, right? So, we have I think 40% that's 30 and below, 30% that's between 30 and 60, and then the rest is for that 60 and above um, and, and focuses on that workforce housing. So, when we started here, we went from 55 million to 100 million in affordable housing every year. We, this administration has put 100 million as the floor for affordable housing. Last year, we invested, we gave the council a budget, which I think had 125 million. Council peeled it back to 116 million. We can talk about the politics of that as a different time. We, were, we didn't like that. <laughs> um, but, but we invest significantly in affordable housing, in deeply affordable housing. When I talk about the, the, the shelters that we put up, we have a focus, we, we have completely remade our family housing system. We've reduced family homelessness in the district by 40%. And that isn't because we put everybody in a shelter. It's because we got them in stable housing. We have flexible rent subsidies that we provide for people to keep them in their homes. We have vouchers. We have a housing purchase assistance program Um, where you can get money to put down payment for your purchase for your housing purchase we have an employee purchase assistance program so if you're a dc resident and work for the government there are two programs that you can benefit from to get down payment assistance to buy your first house in the district of
0: Columbia. can i ask you this uh with with a hundred million dollars over a hundred million dollars a year going into affordable housing how does that translate into units like how many affordable housing units currently exist in the district?
2: Oh gosh, you're quizzing me here, Orlando. I don't know the total number of units that um, that we would call affordable in the district. I know that through our investments in the, uh, the produ- housing, we call it the Housing Production Trust Fund, uh, that we've been able to produce over 5,000 affordable units since 2015. We also have a housing preservation fund uh, that looks to take naturally affordable um, housing and keep it affordable uh, through a covenant uh, for, a, you know, a period of affordability like 20, 25 years. And we use uh, the preservation fund and leverage it with other dollars, I think on a three-to-one basis, where if we invest $10 million, we have a $30 million pool where we can keep housing um, affordable in the district. So, you know, our, our major tool is the Housing Production Trust Fund, but we also have the a preservation fund. We also have a law that allows tenants in a building, if their house, if their apartment building is a, is about to be um, uh, not, the some, is
0: going to expire, and it's going to
2: expire. That, yeah. that we will assist the residents in purchasing the building to keep it affordable. So we do a, a whole host of things to try to hit affordability. Now, all of that money that we spend still scratches the surface on the affordability problem. We have, um, we have 900 new residents that, probably not now since the pandemic, that move to the district every month. So the demand is significant and that's what's driving um, the housing prices up and we can't produce enough for affordable supply, uh, even with the significant investments that we've already made. But it is the number one item on our agenda
1: there are a few forces right because one of them is happening in cities everywhere and that's just gentrification on steroids it is the ability to purchase property is so high and it's really hard to control that once people have a demand to live in an area and and the gentrification is
2: driven by the, the demand for the housing which is driven by the population growth
1: it is and so um you know but but the other thing is that um It seems to me as though the federal government has to make housing low-income people a priority because you can't put it all on the back of cities.
2: Well, it's it's interesting you say that. We've had a a debate in DC for the last couple of years around public housing. And there's an activist group uh, that really is pushing this government and the council hard. And we've actually stepped up and are working with the housing authority to make investments in their public housing. Um, And so we put 30 or $40 million a year in the housing authority to help them with the dilapidated uh, housing infrastructure that they have because housing authorities aren't getting the money that they need from the federal government uh, to really make any meaningful investment in the repair and upkeep and maintenance of public housing stock. Uh, and, And that issue and the condition of the deferred maintenance or the impact of deferred maintenance for our public housing facilities um, just are staggering. I mean, it's well, in, the, in the hundreds, it's in the hundreds, perhaps even a billion dollars.
1: I mean, that, that's, that's true the nation over. We have a public housing development, one of the few remaining after Hope 6 in the East Side area. And um, they're having to, they can't even release apartments because they can't afford to fix them up. And so the vacancy rate is tremendous, even though we have so much um, homelessness. I'm kind of a person who's in favor of universal housing vouchers. Like if everybody mm-hmm. income qualified had housing vouchers, like everybody who is income qualified had food stamps, wouldn't that help create um, a supply of income at least? Um, and also, you know, stable, Revenue for future landlords to develop and maintain affordable housing. You know, right now, one of the things I know is going to happen nationally To pay rent so it seems like we're about to enter into another period for a big shift and it would be great if on a national level we began to rethink housing, how we house everybody so that it's not government investments are not always in bricks and mortar but are put it's putting money in the hands of people so they can acquire their own housing or use those tools mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. anyway, um, I read the book Evicted, have you read that? I have not yeah it's really good matthew desmond wrote it and that's one of his recommendations having looked at rental issues across the nation because only a small fraction of people who need public housing have it right but that raises another question can you tell us about the role of a city administrator i don't think we have one in detroit
2: so there's two styles there's two um predominant ways that cities are uh, managed in the United States. It is either the council mayor form of government where there is a strong uh, mayor that's the chief executive who is elected and that person is responsible for the data activity of the city. And then there's the city manager or the council manager form of government, which is really where all of my career has been is in the council manager form where Um, there's a professional administrator that is hired by the council to include the mayor and that that person manages the day-to-day activities of the entire government and is responsible uh, to the council, but the mayor has no administrative authority. And so my career in Dayton, uh, where I was city manager uh, in Cincinnati, where I was assistant city manager Greensboro, North Carolina, and Alexandria, Virginia, I was in the city manager role and worked for the elected council to include the mayor. In the district, the mayor is separately elected. She is the chief executive um, and has all of the administrative authority and she appoints a city administrator uh, to manage the day-to-day operations. And so the best, the most analogous way to describe how this system works in DC is that Muriel Bowser is the CEO And Rashad Young, as her appointed city administrator, is the COO of the government. Um, And so I'm responsible for the day-to-day oversight of the agencies of the government, uh, the development of the budget, um, and just managing all of the day-to-day activities uh, that the CEO gives me. (laughs) And she sets the policy direction for her administration, uh, and it is my job uh, with a team of people uh, to execute that on her behalf. Yeah. Wow. And not every strong mayor system has an appointed or, or, an, or an official that is analogous to a city administrator. Some do. Um,
0: some, some don't. Yeah. I think our structure here is a little bit different The mayor. You part. have a strong mayor, I believe. You right? have a strong mayor who appoints group executives. To run various uh, city agencies and departments, and but we're supposed to have a checks and balances system with also a strong legislative body in the city council that yeah.
1: Well Rashad is saying it's true. it's a strong mayor' system yeah or we have I mean that's the, the the terminology that defines and describes the politics. I think we used to have very strong personalities on our city council and we had an at-large city council. And when you have an all at-large city council, that at-large city council is accountable to the exact same people as the mayor, and they can challenge the mayor's authority. Now we have a bifurcated system where seven of our council people are elected by district and two of them are at-large. And so there's different accountabilities for seven people who are elected. They're not supposed to oversee the city at a, as a large and as what, the way it seems to work is it gives the mayor more power it weakens the council not strengthens it they say well it's increased local accountability but it doesn't really work that way
2: interesting now we have eight um ward members who represent their wards and we have uh five at large members to include the chairman and this council is a very active council i mean they're they are um they're strong uh and they they wield their authority um pretty pretty decisively when they can uh so there there is probably a good tension between the executive and the council in dc uh because our council is is they're very active and
1: one person describe it is that when you represent a district then you you are the the you are clients of the mayor. The mayor you're looking for the mayor to give you certain things to um to give to your district, right? That's
0: and so- true.
1: And so what I've seen is some people say that we need to expand the number of at-large seats in order to balance that out. Because the benefits of the district council or the ward system is local accountability. The detriment is local accountability and fragmentation of power.
2: Right, right.
1: So... I don't want to get too too wonky, but when I think through your system of government and I hear you speaking about these issues, I think that there is something to be said about having a professional run the city, somebody who's been trained to run a municipality in charge of that city.
2: Yeah, and
1: you know, to her credit, um, not all, not all city administrators
2: before me were um, city managers or had been. Uh, what I would say the traditional or trained city managers. Uh, but when Muriel Bowser was elected, she intentionally sought out um, as candidates for city administrator people who had managed cities before um, and wanted to bring that uh, professionalism and experience um, into her administration.
0: Sweet. Rashad, have you uh, been, ha- have you had time to look up? from D.C. and pay attention to what's been happening in other cities um, as Black Lives Matter uh, protests continue to happen, especially in cities like Atlanta and um, in L.A., we all know what's happening to Atlanta. Can you just sort of give us a sense, you know, D.C.'s communication with cities all over the United States, especially a city like Atlanta, who's seeing a reverberation and a regeneration of protests given uh, the now ruled homicide of, of, of an African American man by police in the Wendy's parking lot.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we've watched. Um, I think the collective we here, the mayor, uh, me, her leadership team, the police department, is what what's been occurring all across the country. And you know, all of us have our networks. The mayor. Um, has occasion to speak to mayors from other cities, our police chief to the chiefs of other cities, either through the um, International Association of Chiefs of Police or the big city chiefs forum, you know, me to, to other city managers and city administrators in those cities. and So we've all sort of been watching and I've been looking at what's happening in like the LA's and in Atlanta's um, in New York, uh, and, you know, for some of it, it is learning, it is looking at um, what doesn't work or if, or what if, if you do, if you take certain actions, um, what the impacts of those actions uh, can be. So, you know, I look at, and I don't want to, I, I hate, I, I hesitate to be judge, judgmental of other cities, because I don't know the dynamics of how they made their decisions and how they executed what they've done, but I look at, you know, some of the things that we saw in New York about and, and how the officers have responded to protesters or the, the New York officer driving his car through um, and hitting uh, other protesters. Oh, really? I, I, I'm not, sorry? You're, you're not, not sure i no, I'm, I'm not suggesting to say I'm not sure of that, but I just always hesitate when I start remarking on how cities have managed it. Because I don't know if that was a tactical issue in terms of how the mayor and the chief and the uh, the police commissioner decided they wanted to do something, or whether it was an officer who was way out of bounds and took it upon his own self to, like, mow through a, a row of people. Like, I don't know the intricacies of that.
1: But do you um, know where the mayor has stood on that? Do you know where the police chief commissioner stood on that? Have they come out and said, this is unallowable in our force? Are they coming um, out straight- in favor yeah, of protest I'm not
2: sure what De Blasio and the commissioner has said specifically about um, the New York incident uh, and I think initially um, the mayor may have uh, said his officers did the right thing I think but I, I don't I'm not I don't know for sure what he said
1: black lives matter painted on the street where that person died I'm looking for some show of of something in this in new york city to demonstrate that the city of new york and its police department believes that black lives matter because we've had too many incidents there including incidents during this and that was just one of the many incidents of police brutality taking place during this crisis and so i think that we've got to get to the point of not needing to know the details because i promise you had a black man driven his car into a crowd of white folks nobody'd be saying well i don't know I haven't seen all, and I'm not saying this is what you're saying. I'm saying this because my heart is hurting right now. You know, it just feels to me as though there's a very high tolerance level for abuse of Black protesters or protesters of people for Black people, because even white protesters during the civil rights movement were being killed. You know, if you were fighting for civil rights of Black people, you were on the side of the enemy and your life was less, was worth less. Because I think of all of the marches that took place across this nation, where um, the alt-right neo-Nazis were going through places with guns and other types of things, and you just didn't see police violence, you know, against those people.
2: No, I I hear you. I agree. I agree with that. I think of the what what city was it in that the seventy-five-year-old got um,
0: knocked down? Knocked down. The blood. Um. Oh, it was an Eastern. I might have Philly, but I'm not sure. i don't have to I'm check. It I mean, to I'm the Googles. Sure. I'll figure it out.
1: Yeah, but you know, uh, and, and Donald Trump did not it, it demonized he, the man who was beat he up. Tweet,
2: he oh, tweeted oh, about it, and he talked about. Um, he said he he fell on purpose or intentionally or something like that. I mean, when you see things like that, like it 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 just Buffalo, it sh-
0: Buffalo, New York.
2: Was it by? I I thought it was in New York City. It it just shakes you to the core of. um, It's just wrong. Like it's just not what you do, uh, and and not what you, and not how you are supposed to respond to these things. But what I was saying in terms of looking at what those other cities uh, have done, or, or how, what has transpired in those cities, you know, for me as as a person who has some responsibility for. Um, how these things get managed in my own city. I look at things like, um, you know, did they enact a curfew? and if they did at what time? and if they did do that, then what happened after the curfew? Did they move to immediately arrest people or did they arrest people who were involved in some other um, act, you know illegal activity or dangerous activity? And so I watch those kinds of things just to figure out to help me think through how we're making decisions and what we're considering. Um, as to you know the impacts of uh, how we try to manage uh, these protests and allow people the space to do those protests and do them safely,
0: yeah there was some news what? that came out today uh, around out of New York about uh, the police off the police department uh, eliminating plain clothes officers um, in in some respects, and i 'm just wondering about the these symptoms, these symptoms that are sort of being fixed at and chipped away at, um, and I'm wondering about the overall system of policing and the culture of policing. We can defund police, but you know, what are we doing about the culture that breeds this uh, uh, disparate treatment of Black and Brown people? And I want to pose that question to you. Even though you guys are funding upward, how are you managing morale and culture within the Metro Police Department in D.C. to prevent this kind of thing from happening in a perpetual way?
2: Yeah, I think there are a number of things that you have to do um, in this circumstance. And it is about the culture and the system that you uh, create. You have to have a extremely high level of accountability for conduct. Uh, and and that goes all the way to um, how officers talk to and interact with residents, right? And so it isn't a case where you decide to pay attention It was probably, uh, it might have been 2016, 2017. Um, I was coming into, we call it this building. I'm in the Wilson building. I was coming into City Hall, uh, driving, talking on my phone. And a Metropolitan Police officer pulls me over because I'm talking on my cell phone. And you can't talk on your cell phone while you're driving in D.C. And I knew that, like, when he pulled me over, my assumption was it was because I was on the phone. And so I anticipated that that was going to be what the issue was. And so the officer comes up and his demeanor and approach to me, I mean, just was absolutely nasty. The rudest, condescending, just, just, you know. And so I said to the officer, like, look, I know I was on the phone. Like, if you want to write me a ticket, that's fine. Like, write me a ticket, but you're not going to talk to me like this. Like, I'm a resident of this city. Um, I deserve to be treated. And I never said what I did. I never said my job uh, because it doesn't matter what my job is. I'm a resident. I'm a, I'm a, or a visitor here. I should be treated with respect, irrespective of my job type. And so after the incident was over, I talked to the police chief and said, like, you know, this is completely unacceptable. No officer should treat a person, a civilian in that manner. I mean, it was rude, it was condescending, it was mean-spirited. If you want to write me a ticket, write me a ticket, fine, I'll pay the ticket, and, you know, I'll move on. And I think that is so important um, that we constantly set the expectation about how we're going to treat each other, talk to each other, work with each other, particularly in uh, law
1: enforcement. How was that that enforced? How How was that enforced? in a climate where union contracts protect officers from almost every disciplinary action. Um, Our former police chief Ike McKinnon spoke about his um, role as chief and when he was a supervisor in the police department and he wrote people up and had those things reversed because of a culture that is sustained by a union system that it, that sees itself as being responsible for protecting police officers at all costs. It's like the police mafia. How do you sustain that? Because I know that that sound. I mean, and I don't mean this to be rude. I just feel as though that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing about police officers who get fired and the unions are able to get them their jobs back, no matter what they've done. How do we fix that?
2: So I think, um, You have to fix, so to get to the root of that, where you have union contracts that um, are disproportionately sided with the union or the employee uh, for discipline, you have to, you've got to fight the fight to make those changes. Uh, What is, what is, I think, um, troubling here uh, in the district is that we don't, we wouldn't have the authority to fire an officer as quickly as an officer was fired in uh, in 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 Atlanta. In, in, in Atlanta, you couldn't do that here um, because the contract would prohibit you from doing that. Um, so we've got to make some changes uh, in those contracts. But I will tell you, all of the disciplinary action and ability um, isn't for naught. In at least in this community, you can discipline officers and suspend officers. The problem I think is when you have an egregious act, it does take, it takes too long, quite frankly. And those contracts have to be changed. You have to bargain those away. You're gonna have to um, make, you're gonna have to address that contract to get the authority on the management side that you need uh, to address those disciplinary actions that, that, uh, that are required.
1: Hey, Rich, so
2: I I, go ahead, go ahead,
1: Donna. A lot of what people want to see is disbanding of police unions. I think a lot of people want to see the AFL-CIO distance itself from police unions, and police unions have to remake themselves. A police union is not existing necessarily to protect workers' rights. Um, and, and and when you have a paramilitary organization like that, you really need to have something different. You don't have um, soldiers' unions, right? You don't have, uh, if you're a soldier in the US Army, your union does not protect you from army discipline. <laughs> you have police unions. If you you get a badge and a gun, you have to be treated differently because of the amount of power the state has invested in you. And so as much as I'm a union advocate, when you find unions, whatever that union may be, standing in the way of progress, we really have to evaluate, is this working for us in the right way?
0: And the investment of power that that, as you said, that is given to uh, police departments, when officers only typically have six months of training to enforce the law, like there, there is a mismatch here, right? <laughs>
2: well, one thing I want to say about the the union aspect too is that the unions didn't get there by themselves, right? And so the union didn't wake up, and the contract didn't suddenly appear to give this disproportionate influence. Uh, to the union as it related to matters over discipline. And so those are decisions that were made and bargained for by some management group, some mayor, some city administrator at some point uh, that you shouldn't do. Right. And so it isn't, it isn't, it, it, is, it is incumbent upon those of us in leadership to make sure that the relationship that we have with our employees protects the interests of uh, the residents that we support and gives us the accountability that we need. And in, in, in no, no contract was created saying you couldn't fire a police officer. Some management representative at some point agreed to a process that now hamstrings you from doing the things that you want to do.
1: I mean, modern policing exists as it does because of political people aside from them. Uh, Modern policing was militarized as part of the crime bill, you know, giving all of this excess military equipment. And when you look at um, when police unions don't protect police, juries do, you know. It's not as though the rest of society is outraged when a black man gets killed. I was at a social justice conference in Chicago a few years ago And there was a woman, a mother from D.C. who came to speak about her son who was executed by police. And when I say executed, what I mean is she ran a video, you may have heard of this case, where her son was running away from police near public housing and he was shot. And you watched him go down. And watching that made me sick to my stomach, seeing this mother and seeing what happened to that young man in D.C. It happens all over the United States where black men are treated more like bulldogs or more like pit bulls than they are like human beings. And the dehumanization of black men kind of permits the brutalization. I should not suggest black men because black women are mistreated too. The dehumanization of black people gives license to all different types of abuses. And so the union though is the entity that is the last defense if we can get the general public to change its minds how do we change unions and i agree with you these deals were cut some time ago when you know unions where police officers existed in large measure to keep black people in their place if you look at the history of police which a lot of people are saying we must do in order to understand where we are right now um it's been problematic since we've had modern policing yeah. But I really do hope we can get things changed.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, me too. Rashad, uh, for our Fresh Off the Press segment, I want to ask you about the spirit that's in D.C. Some really amazing news came out of the Supreme Court of the United States today. Multiple sources are reporting Uh, including the Washington Post uh, says Supreme Court says gay transgender workers are protected by federal law forbidding discrimination on the basis of sex Robert Barnes from the Washington Post is reporting so in all of this starkness and all this darkness uh, what's the spirit in DC like right now uh, as a result of this really amazing I mean the
2: the spirit is like the the light is bright Uh, people have been tweeting and posting and um, celebrating and, frankly, somewhat shocked that a 6-3 to vote of this Supreme Court um, acknowledged and granted uh, affirmed rights for any uh, group that has been marginalized or discriminated against. And so people are pretty excited and happy um, about this uh, decision. I actually look forward to being able to read the decision. I want to read what the I you know I want to read what the the law what they said and what the majority opinion says and I'm also interested in um, the, the minority opinion and the dissenting
0: and, opinion yeah
2: dissenting opinion and just how they could rationalize uh, voting against uh, granting rights to, to to human beings in this way but I think it's pretty I think it's pretty dope you know in
1: California um, there are many. Black gay people who are really celebrating all Black Lives Matter and really demanding a seat at the table. And yeah. let's, let's not look at Black trans lives, Black queer lives, Black gay lives as being less valuable than any other Black life because we're all deemed disposable in this world. And when you think of the work of James Baldwin, his brilliance and the insight that he brought to us, when you think of Bayard Rustin, when you think of the women who originated Black Lives Matter, And people put their lives on the line. A lot of times these were Black gay people fighting for rights for Black people and now having their rights and their humanity affirmed. And I've got to say this, as the mother of an openly Black gay male son, I cried. As soon as I heard that news, I had to pull over because I was in tears. Wow. Because my son is in California right now. And the Supreme Court said that his life mattered. So... Um, it was a beautiful day for me. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: that's it's awesome. A, Great it's story. A, it's a beautiful day for a lot of people. A lot of people whom listen to this show. Uh, you know what's funny? You know, you talk to some kids, and they're like, "This was a problem. Like, why? What? Like, you know, they they couldn't even you know fathom that this was even that this wasn't law already." Right, right, uh, right. being fired because of their gender or sexual orientation. So I know the spirit in D.C. right now is high for the time being. I hope I hope it stays that way. Donna, we're creeping up on an hour, so uh, I want to let the listeners know that if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or email us at authenticallydetroit.com. Shout out. Time. So I have some shout outs. Rashad, if you got shout outs, get them ready. Donna, always last minute with her shout outs. So I'll let her. I'm ready today. Oh, Her shout outs are ready. ready I want to shout out Sydney James, a local artist here in the city of Detroit for raising all of those funds to get the Malice Green Mural in Highland Park done. There's going to be some uh, programming in that space uh, coming up this week for uh, Juneteenth. I also want to shout out uh, a good friend of mine, Chase Cantrell for his Next Steps Together project that will be convening uh, black men all across the nation in conversation this weekend uh, to uh, have conversations about what it's like to experience American life as a black man. Uh, Shout out to uh, Luckwood Detroit activist Tawana Petty of whom I am a big fan who is getting a really decent response for uh, a racial equity talk that she would be doing at the University of Michigan. Uh, go to her Facebook, Tawana Petty, if you want to register for that already. I think registrations are have surpassed 300 registrants. So I don't know how much room that they have, but you want to get that in. And I want to shout out uh, Urbanist and Placemaker out of Toronto, my friend Jay Pitter, who uh, brought me in to do a talk with uh, the Canadian Urban Institute I can't tell you how rewarding that has been. Uh, we t- we hosted a talk and over two thousand people tuned in uh, to our talk, and the response has been amazing. We're coming back actually in a couple of weeks. So shout out to Jay Pitter, who also is a Detroit lover who comes here every chance she gets. Donna, you got shout outs.
1: I do. Shout out to Larry Simmons at the Brightmore Alliance, who is a member of the Detroit Twenty-One, who penned an outstanding S-E-D. letter um, about this incident about George Floyd and linked all of this to the history of Black oppression and really talked about the need for all of us to stand and promote community resilience. I am so proud of the Detroit 21 for being a learning organization that has grown to be a force for justice in the city of Detroit. And Larry, thank you for writing that. Shout out to another Detroit 21 member, John Thorne, who um, that was put amazing. together Amazing memorial for all of the people who've been killed by police violence on his front lawn. He had a picture, and he had crosses planted there. Now, what people don't know is that when John had that done, he was bit by a spider and had to be hospitalized. And his brother and his nephew had to carry, and his son, his brother or cousin or whatever, his family members had to finish that memorial for him because he had envisioned it and he was too sick to do it. Um, I want to shout out Neil, Neil Gorsuch. Um, he's not my favorite guy, but I can't think of a better way to upset this president than for him to offer <laughs> that opinion. I was like, go Neil. I loved it, right? <laughs> um, shout out to the FDA for giving him a one-two punch because the FDA finally um, said that they, they removed the emergency of, uh, approval for hydroxychloroquine saying, wait a minute, there's no evidence that it works and expose the quack in charge for the lack of medical license that he has. (laughs) So, um, and I I also want to um, shout out Bridge Detroit because I'm really excited about the work that Bridge Detroit is doing and lifting up stories. Um, We had our first advisory committee meeting this afternoon and it was exciting opportunity to talk about all the topics that the six employees of um, British Train are going to be responsible for. (laughs) There was a laundry list today. Wasn't that, Orlando? It
0: was. It was. You guys are going to enjoy reading those minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Rashad, do you have anybody you want to shout out? I have
2: a couple. I want to shout out my friend Aaron Holmes. He's writing this essay on... Uh, race and protest and his reflections on what's been occurring in DC. I got to read a first part of it yesterday and it was awesome. And so my shout out, uh, I want to just encourage him to finish that up. I want to shout out Brandon Scott, who I haven't yet met, but I'm excited to meet soon uh, who will be the new mayor of Baltimore, uh, Maryland. Wow. He won the mayoral primary last week.
0: Yep.
2: Uh, and so uh, I have, we have some friends in common who are uh, connecting us. Uh, and I want to be supportive of his new mayoral administration in Baltimore. I think that's uh, pretty cool that um, he's he's rising to that seat. And shout out to Donna and Orlando for putting me on my second ever in life podcast. Uh so- <laughs> Um, I enjoyed uh, the opportunity to be able to talk, meet you, Donna, and always talk to my girlfriend and brother Orlando. So this was this was fun. Yeah, thank
1: you. Oh, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Um, can you sit back? I want to see what your shirt says. We are. My daughter went to Penn State. and Whenever I say, says it says, State, it we, says are...
2: we we are Washington D.C and it's the Office of uh, City Administrator, Mayor Muriel Bowser. So we have our own swag in D.C. Oh, big time. And in these COVID-filled days, I have uh, probably worn three suits in uh, about
0: three months. so, <laughs> I, <should laughs> it's so and jeans. <laughs> I know that's right. I know that's right. Know. <laughs> we really appreciate this opportunity for this cross-city learning, and it maybe it's something that we will continue to do. We learned a lot. And when yeah. everything is said and done, Rashad, uh, you got to come to Detroit. We got to figure out how to get you to Detroit. And, I would love to do that. that. That would be awesome. City folks, maybe, you know, some connection I would love that. A lot from you. Thank you all once again for listening to Authentically Detroit. We will see you at the same time next week. Until then, catch the wave.